Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gosowski, and I'm here with my favorite critic, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you doing today? Great. How are you? I am doing well. It's it's hot doc season, so it's always a great time of year. And uh, you know, to all our listeners who might be listening to the podcast version of this, please be sure to rate and review it wherever you're uh, listening to the show. Absolutely. So this is the 30th anniversary of hot docs. And I won't get into how young I was when I first went, but I've been doing this a long time. And that's not, that's not a boast. It's just a, like, I can't believe it's been 30 years kind of thing. And it's grown so much. It was so small before. And now it's amazing. It's this internationally renowned festival. And, you know, that it's just, it's amazing that we have that in Toronto. Saying that, uh, I'll just dive into something that was uh, a film that was made in Iceland. So there's lots of films from all over the world, like all sorts of topics, you know, and go to hotdogs.ca to check out all the choices. I'm going to start with a film called, okay, I know it's my name, but that's not why I watched it, okay? (laughs) (laughs) It's called Soviet Barbara. The story of Ragnar Hjartenson in Moscow. And Rag, I'm going to use his first name because I don't want to butcher his last name. He's an Icelandic art, art star. So Ragnar in uh, December 2021, he's always been obsessed with Russia. And so he decides and he's invited he, and he, he wants to go um, to this, this giant museum it's uh, like a Russian oligarch has just opened this museum in December 2021. And he wants to set up this giant ex- exhibition. And his theme is recreating the fall of an empire, specifically the fall of the Soviet empire. And what happens is, um, oh, and I should also point out the reason it's called Soviet Barbara is because he knows that the Russians had this obsession with this American soap called Santa Barbara, which you know takes place in California in Santa Barbara. So he also has this idea because of the space, because of, well, when you see it, the nature of the space, it sort of lends, lends itself to a performance piece. And he wants to create this continuous performance piece where episodes are recreated. So it's like performance art, but on the walls is like paintings of his, but on video art pieces of his, but also other artists. And they're all sort of like commenting on each other, but um, the viewer can also come in and just watch this. And he even, you know, he reaches out to the creators and I'm not going to ruin that, but the interesting thing about this film is like it follows him very closely and it gives you a portrait of him. So it, it starts off as this portrait of an artist and how he's working on this exhibition. So it's an insight into the way his mind works because like, he's not just a painter. He's not just a video artist. He's, he's like, he's all, he, he has done all art. He's even done music. So you get background on him, but then 
yeah, you get this insight. But then, being Russia, are we surprised? Things start to happen in terms of the politics in Russia and in terms of the realities of creating art in Russia, especially art that is a little critical. And so this whole concept of censorship versus what one of the Russian curators calls editing. It's not censorship, it's editing. So he gets involved in like saying, you shouldn't do that part. Don't include that. And he's, he's just, in his mind, he's just editing. And the film moves towards events leading up to the invasion of the Ukraine. And how, yeah, it's like this really interesting political, social, it's got social commentary on not just Russia, but on the Americans. It's like, and on, you know, authoritarian regimes. So, and all art, because artists around the world face some level of censorship or what can be, some people would, I guess, would call editing, but mm-hmm. we know that's nonsense. Well, that sounds very interesting. It's fascinating. Also, because Ragnar is so charming. So, you know, it's uh, it just moves, the film moves so so well, so quickly. It's just, it's like this vivid portrait of all these different elements and the way that it moves from a portrait into all these other things. It's like, this is a great documentary. Okay, definitely have to add Soviet Barber to the list of films to see. Um, Do you want to talk about a film that you saw that I was also intrigued about? Um, A wolf pack named Ernesto? Oh, wow. Talk about a film that moves. There is this incredible rhythm in this film. And uh, let me just tell you about it first, because I tend to forget to do that right away um, when I get excited. Um, So this is by a world-renowned Mexican filmmaker, Everardo Gonzalez. And what he's done is he's created this sort of compendium of people that he calls Ernesto. He gets into the world of gangs, of teenage boys mostly, that are involved in uh, organized crime and his style it's the style it's the subject of course because we're people are just like being completely open and so we're right in there and the film opens we're just like right in there and it's just like layering of various voices right we're following different people and we're hearing these different stories of different aspects of being in a gang and getting involved in a gang. But the style is fascinating because as soon as we, as soon as it opens and this is what happens, it's it's going to sound like it's not that interesting, right? It's going to sound like it's going to be hard to follow, but the way it moves, it's like you're riveted. You're just absolutely riveted. He has got, shots of people from behind moving just like walking and their voiceover you hear the stories and then sometimes there are shots of like movement on the road and all you see is like a vehicle moving on the road but you don't see the vehicle you see the road right so it's just it sounds kind of experimental 
but it's not. Don't like, don't be scared off by that because this visual strategy just enlivens, right? What these individuals are telling you. And through these stories, you really get to understand, if you don't already, you get to understand the cycle of like poverty and what life is like, what you're, you know, what people feel like when they're so poor that they, they, they don't even feel like they have choices. Like a one, one guy's voice was, is saying like, no one presented me with any options in life. And, and this was the only way really to get any respect. And that, that sounds kind of obvious, but wait until you get this layered effect of voices and the sound and the, just the editing, because sometimes it'll just go to black, but it goes to black to underscore. And just like this fascinating visual strategy to go along with the fascinating subject. This is an unforgettable film and you're not going to see anything else like it. Oh, that sounds uh, very good. Have to, have to look into to that one. Um, there's a film that I saw when you were talking in that about that last film in regards to poverty that made me think of this film called Samuel and the Light that is playing. Um, it is a film that is from Brazil, I believe. Um, the director is Vincinius. I believe the last name is Grinis or Grinis. Uh, my apologies. To the filmmaker, if I mispronounced that name, but it's it's the film shot over a six-year period, and it's essentially set in this small village that's on the coast of Brazil. So these people live right by the water. You see the kids playing with the rocks and whatnot, just kind of having a simple life. And over the course of these six years, it kind of focuses on Samuel as you see him from a little baby to as he goes. To, to be a little uh, a boy and his family and the the big thing is that electricity is finally coming to their village so you start to see as the family's kind of coping with their day-to-day life the father's you know working the boats as a fisherman what have you and then slowly you're seeing a lot of footage of the the electricity pipes being put in and it starts with the pole. And then, you know, later on, there's more electricity. But then with more electricity means the tourism changes. So you, you're quietly seeing the changing landscape of the community and the family. You know, the father goes in from like, goes from basically hauling in fishing boats, even though he still remains a fisherman throughout the entire thing, to hauling in boats with cases and cases of a Heineken because tourism is now the big thing. And on the beach, there's a lot more little bars and huts that people are selling their wares. And you start to see the beach that was kind of just like locals and fishermen being swarmed by tourists partying. And it's a really fascinating look at the industrialization of a community, but also how it shifts the dynamics of the community. And when it gives them way more options to be more financially stable, but then it also kind of subtly kills community and just it re, it reshapes the the natural landscape and then there's also some interesting dynamics between samuel's mother and father and the mother has all these ideas of like oh well, maybe i'll open up a bar the father's against it and then later on 
you see that they do have some type of bar, but now the father has basically given it over to his brother. And it's just that kind of gender dynamics where the man is making all these decisions, but his decisions are not necessarily in tune with the changing climate. You know, so you have a lot of these married women kind of complaining about their husband's lack of we'll say emotional intelligence. They're not open because they're still very much the old way of men are work hard fishermen. You, you bottle up everything and the, the landscape in the world is, is changing. So it's a really fascinating film. It's kind of a, a quiet film. You, you take in a lot of the, the scenery that there is dialogue, but it's kind of sparse throughout, but it's a really fascinating film. So would definitely recommend those looking for something a little different to check out Samuel and the light. Um, I, yeah. I know you saw one uh, which had a very interesting title, Much Ado About Dying. Did you want to oh, talk about talk that? About, okay, we're switching gears here. Much Ado About Dying. Um, if anybody knows Shakespeare, there's a play called Much Ado About Nothing, um, which this is not, but Much Ado About, right? It just like, it has this ring of, of that play, but there is a Shakespearean element to this. And uh, the filmmaker, Simon, his uncle, is, he has no one else. And his uncle like, really loves him and begs him practically to come and take care of him because he's not doing very well. And his, his uncle was an actor, right? Uh, but he can't really move around. And like, yeah, he's, he's quite elderly. And, and sometimes Simon is wondering like, because he, he caught dementia and like he even gets him checked out. But what happens is David, the uncle, is really having trouble with like day-to-day living. Like he has been holed up in his house for I don't know, I can't remember how many years. And it's it's completely rotting in there. Um, it's falling apart. Uh, there's piles of stuff everywhere. And, um, and he's, he's sick just from that environment. But on top of that, he's kind of losing it because like he, when Simon tried to get someone in to help him, the uncle, we don't know if this is because the uncle was like, he's resisting care in a way he wants Simon there. He's resisting official health care, like state supported care. This is in England. Um, so he, he answers the door naked when a social worker comes and like, but the biggest problem is he keeps giving money to people like his neighbors. And, and so it, it starts to get suspicious and David, um, sorry, Simon, um, Simon is like, not really sure what to do because he doesn't really want the full responsibility of taking care of this elderly man, this elderly demanding, stubborn, but wonderfully charming uh, man who you know um, is loving being in front of the camera. He's performing, basically. And Simon is smart enough to put him in, like, most of the time in this sort of, like, mid-shot close-up so that, yeah, that's sometimes all you see is David and he's babbling away or he's reciting Shakespeare. And, you know, he, um, so it's like this, this 
uh, it's just, it's full of so many interesting things, this film, even though it's a simple premise, it's a portrait of this, this individual, but it's also a chronicle of their relationship. And of course, things do get serious because David is ill. Um, and, the, you know, these, these, these relationships with this these neighbors is like getting really problematic, right? Um, and getting the right supports for David in the healthcare system is getting more and more difficult. And people are like, well, he's, he doesn't have dementia and he's being difficult. So, you know, they throw up their hands and they're like, we can't help you. And, and Simon is getting resentful and, you know, but it's just like this, this loving, complicated relationship that is like so true to life in a way. And this fascinating, the Shakespeare thing is like, there's this fascinating through line that um, has to do with the play, the Shakespearean play King Lear and the relationship King Lear had with his fool. And that's, uh, that's all I'm going to say. It's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, I loved this film. It's, David is unforgettable. And I hope, you know, I hope people go and witness this. It's a testament to an incredible person. Okay, that sounds great. Um, hearing you talk about David in front of the camera and the way how the camera is plays such a crucial part in in that film, it had me thinking about a film that I saw called the Mountain The Mountains, and it's a film uh, from Denmark directed by Christian. I believe the last name is Ian Josh. Um, again, my apologies for mispronouncing the name if you've listened to this show regularly you know i am terrible with names uh but in this film christian is basically expanding on a short film that he made in 2018 called haunted and the film basically follows the director as he's trying to make sense of his family um and and the the shift they've essentially all him and his brothers and parents have all kind of gone their separate ways due to related to a, a tragedy that happened when he was younger. And now they're all coming back and his, because of his father and the way how his father used to use the camera and make home movies, he kind of took that up as a young kid and just kind of became one of those people that films everything. So this film, you have Christian going over 30 years of home videos, seven, I think it's 75,000 photos piecing together this portrait of his family and also the disconnect. And you're seeing as he is trying to connect specifically with his father and his two brothers and trying to understand why everyone has kind of essentially run away in their own forms of it, you know, whether it be physically getting up and going, moving to a different place or one brother's a workaholic, another brother is gone to like the Arctic circle. Like, you know, they've just, are constantly moving, but you have this portrait of men who don't know how to connect with e with each other and really struggling with that. And it, at first I was a little skeptical with this film just because we've seen so many films about filmmakers who have either home movies or making movies about their life and just that access. But this one, I have to admit, won me over. Um, there's a, a real earnestness to the quest and even though they incorporate a lot of humorous moments, these moments actually are effective in terms of bringing the brothers together in odd ways. And because they're so used to being filmed, 
it's not necessarily like there's an awkwardness in terms of them revealing themselves to the camera. It's just that they're used to the camera. The camera is almost secondary to them, but it's them having to finally admit certain secrets that they've each held within them for a long time. And it's a really fascinating portrait of masculinity and just the way men are enabled to talk to each other. I do wish that there was a little more focus on the mother. I think the mother is also an integral character who doesn't really get explored. Um, again, they're focusing mainly on the, the masculinity, but for for how this film was constructed, the, the mix of pathos and, and humor, I, I quite enjoyed The Mountains, and I would recommend that one. Um, there's a film that you saw that sounded interesting. Do you want to talk about Money Freedom, a story of C.F.A. Frank? Okay. So we're going to go to an economic, a film about economics. Okay. Um, but with a sinister, oh my God, everybody has to see this movie. Um, okay. So uh, the background of this film or really the, what the film is trying to uh, make clear is how uh, former French colonies in Africa who have been independent since 1960, still have to use something called the CFA franc, which is you know, a currency tied to France, directly tied to France, controlled by France. And so it's a remnant of imperialism and it's, it's stifling the economies of these countries. Um, it's, it's still acting in a way like colonialism does. Like it's a symbolic way of colonizing because what France did, like when they introduced it, when, okay, so they set people free, but then they were like, no, but you're gonna use this franc or you're gonna continue to use this franc. And they, it's, it's sinister in a way, the way that they use um, the value of the franc, this CFA franc, um, to to make these countries tied to France directly to France and France only, and basically tie their hands in terms of their powers. Uh, they have no powers to to trade with anybody else, um, and that's due to all these various factors that you'll see when you see the film, in terms of valuing it, devaluing it, you know. And also when they signed these independence sort of, con I don't know if they're contracts, I'm, I'm sorry if I don't have the right terminology there, but they signed agreements with uh, the countries. And in those agreements, the countries had to agree to continue using that franc. Um, so yeah. The, it, like the power of these countries to take over their own economies. And there was something interesting that you said um, that reminded me like in another review that reminded me that the other way, like when they first introduced it, that was the only way a person could get paid in any of these countries. So that if you were an artisan, you couldn't really make a living you had to switch over to doing something 
that would get you frank these CFA francs. Uh, so it, this CFA franc restructured the the economies, right? What what you were saying about what was happening in Samuel in the light, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what's happening in all these countries, and there's like a vast number of them, and yeah. So the artisans disappeared, and everyone just started working on these giant industries, and those giant industries were feeding France. Um, it it's um it sounds like it's this like complicated economic you know explanation and this complicated economic film and it might be dull and dry and it's completely not at all which is why i really really liked it it's it's even got a poetic element to it in terms of this this um narrator but it's got a lively pace and the the talking heads are like intercut really well with all the archival footage from the past to like to to and it goes you know back and forth in time to really give you a sense of just how damaging uh, this other type of colonialism is and it is you know it's a lesson about colonialism and one that continues you know in very like colonialism can continue in other ways than the historically you know obvious one um, and I think that's the really important thing about the film. It's a great, it's a really great film. Okay, that sounds great. Uh, keeping with the theme of money, I, I'm going to talk about one that I, I know you saw as well, The Castle. Um, it's a film from Argentina directed by Martin uh, Benchimold. And it's a really fascinating film um, that I that I absolutely loved because it's got a, it's got a whimsical feel to it even though the story itself I wouldn't necessarily say it's whimsical uh, it's it's about this woman by the name of Justina who essentially inherits the mansion she used to work at and this was a it's big, a castle Courtney it's a it's castle. a castle it's a literal castle it's a castle it's, it's massive it. it's, it's a castle <laughs> um she'd been working there I believe since she was like five years old um and when the matriarch passed away she left her this castle with um, the stipulation that she can't sell it or, or that she shouldn't sell it. So now Justina lives there with her daughter, Alexia, who essentially Alexia kind of wants to leave the rural life and become a Formula One driver. So you have um, them trying to essentially keep up the this castle, even though keeping up a castle just in terms of aesthetics and repairs is really expensive and they don't have the money for that. And then on top of that, you have the, the matriarch family who still comes by quite regularly to hang out, have dinner, play charades. And when they, when that family comes by to visit a lot of the old dynamics start to come into play, even though it's Justina's house, she essentially reverts back to being the maid again. And, having to answer all these questions to these authoritative figures. It's a really fascinating film. If, if you saw the movie Knives Out, it feels like that coming to life without the, <laughs> the murder mystery aspect to it. So it's a, it's a really fascinating film. And as you're observing Justina and Alexia kind of navigating these 
these different worlds that they they operate in the the world of them trying to be just homeowners um and the mother daughter dynamics that are, are are shifting in its own right and then also the the fact that you've got this massive castle and the people who were essentially were the previous owners or have ties to it are still kind of coming in and you know making it seem as if they're they're there for like a summer vacation, if you will, in their in their stays. So the castle is a really fascinating film that I, I highly recommend people check yeah. out. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. I mean, the the whole there's this like whimsy that starts with the music, even it's like whimsical music. But then when they bring back the whimsical music later, when you see what happens, um, when things start to take a like a twist. And then whimsical music is like mixed with like thunder. And I'm not going to tell you guys about that because it's going to ruin it for you. But then it's like, that's like, oh, this is a nightmare now. But it is a nightmare. I mean, why would you? Her hands, I talk about hands being tied. She can't sell it, but she doesn't have enough money because she's poor. Why would you do that to a poor person? It's not really giving them a gift, is it? And no. but also she she it's also doesn't she also doesn't want to sell it because she still has those ties like you know the the portrait of the the matriarch is still there prominence you know so even though it's her place now she's still very much got that mentality of I'm a guest in this home I know but you know what me and my visual strategy again but if you look at the visual strategy the visual strategy is like most of the time you see, you don't even see her face for a while, but mm. you see her in the darkness, in the semi-darkness, trapped in doorways, just like the doomed film noir characters. And basically she's trapped in this situation. And you see it play out in that you know scenario with the family and other scenarios where she's just like, people are taking her for granted. And so this is like, as you said, it's a it's an interesting portrait of all those dynamics, like social dynamics, the mother daughter dynamic. This, there's a past present thing going on with the mother daughter dynamic. You know, mother stuck yep. in the past, daughter wanting to move forward. And um, but there's also this dynamic that you see um, where you're watching this character, the development of a character. And it, you know, it happens towards the end, but like you see the development, there is a development that happens, um, which, uh, yeah. So I think that the ending is like, is like really great. So I hope people see it because this is, this is like one of those films. It's like, uh, you know, I've used the word unforgettable already today, but it's one of those films that is unforgettable because it's like this is a really crazy situation. Oh yeah, it's definitely one that um, if you're if you're in line at hot dogs, that would be one of the ones that you'd recommend. Yeah, to say what have you seen? Yeah, yeah, and it's like you can't write this stuff. If you wrote this as a narrative, it'd be like <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that is true. Um, and she's so I'm sorry, but she she also she's so lovable, you know. Oh yeah. And you, yeah. have, of course, you have to feel for the kid, right? With her dreams, she's got dreams. She's a kid. Yeah, they're very yeah. they're they're compelling characters and individuals. Um, did you want to talk about someone lives here? I know you saw that one. Yeah, someone lives here again. Something something else that got me riled up in terms of uh, 
poverty and the way people treat poor people. In this case, in Toronto, with the unhoused um, people, what, what happened recently where people were um, forcibly removed from parks in that violent way. Well, this sort of like uh, goes before that. And uh, it focuses on a, a young carpenter and he builds these life-saving shelters for unhoused people because, you know, tents, tents are still cold. And it, what drives me crazy, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have a little like sidebar here. What drives me crazy is that, you know, people, not him, but people like politicians don't seem to understand that a shelter is not necessarily a good place. And that's the good thing about this film is you hear voices from actual unhoused people and they tell you that shelters are dangerous. And if you talk to anyone who has been unhoused or who is unhoused or who has mental health problems, which often the two go hand in hand, they're scary places, right? And so this, this, this film shows, you know, this man who's trying to do the right thing he builds these shelters and they're insulated and he tries and he gets all this red tape and, you know, the fire department's like, Oh no, like, you know, they, they can go up in flames. And so he finds a way to make them fire safe, you know, and he goes through all this stuff and still like, there's like, you see the process of like all this red tape and stuff. And you see like, this is a perfect film to watch now with the mayoral election mm -hmm. um but also in terms of a compelling loving lovable character this carpenter like you just you know this is someone that that we all need to to know to get to know and uh his perspective is really important but it's great the way that the film like brings in all this footage from all these different realities but also like i said doesn't just focus on him it is a portrait of him but it also you have voices and sometimes interviews with people who have are affected by being unhoused you know so you hear the reality of it you see the reality of it i mean you don't go into a shelter but you know you can see yeah um, yeah so, so this is, i think someone lives here is a very important film it's crucial for anybody to watch and you know i know no politicians are listening but damn i would challenge them to get to that screening you know i dare you to you sit there and watch this because they won't even if it's on tv they won't mm -hmm. interesting and that's what that's what makes me angry I, i'm sorry this one riled me up like in that way where you get riled up because it's the system's unfair. Well, I have a, a film that will calm you down a bit. Um, it's called <laughs> Fauna, and it's by director Pau Foss, and it's a Spanish film. And this one's actually a really interesting film because it's very much about observation and atmosphere. Um, there's, again, another one of those films where dialogue is sparse um you spend just a lot of time observing and essentially this film takes you into the forces of spain where you have this shepherd who's tending to his animals 
he's getting up there in age. His body can't take all the physical um, work that he he does, and his life is juxtaposed with those of scientists working in a lab trying to find a vaccine for COVID-19. Um, so you've got these two worlds that are essentially like side by side of each other. You know, there's this wonderful shot of the, the shepherd on a cliff with all his sheeps and goats. And then as a the camera pans out, you realize that the, the camera's actually inside the lab where all these people are wearing hazmat suits, you know, so the, the worlds are, are that close and you're, it just kind of goes back and forth as you're watching the shepherd and his life. You're slowly starting to realize not only is he, is he physically getting um, older, but just the way of how things are being done are changing. Like he, him and a, and another man are talking about how, you know, the animals that he has like tags with on the ears are now being tracked via GPS in some countries and and whatnot. And on top of that, with the scientists, you have uh, you're you're seeing the various waves of animals, some of which probably coming from his flock, that are being brought in for testing. And while he's out and about and just kind of living his life during this pandemic, you have these scientists who are inspecting not only like the animals but their facility like you know there's a scene where the cl the cleaning crew was just doing the regular cleaning and you see a little bug on the floor and now it, it triggers well how did this bug get in here where are there cracks so you see them literally going through all the windows trying to smoke it out to see if there's cracks in the window if the, the doorway ceiling so you have like these two kind of competing worlds one where the, the scientists have to be super careful of the cleanliness and everything is sterile and very uniformed. And then you've got the farmer or the shepherd outside with like goats bucking heads and you, you see two baby goats being, being born. And it's, it's a really fascinating look at essentially, as we said in another film, like the past and the future kind of converging in a rather unique way, but the film just kind of presents it and lets you observe, you know, there's not, doesn't really give you much. Like you're the one who comes up with your own opinions of what this means for society, but how essentially, you know, the shepherd is raising his flock because his flock will help produce milk and save lives. And scientists are saving lives by testing on animals and trying to find a vaccine for this massive pandemic. So really, really fascinating film that um, I would recommend checking out. And that's called Fauna. Uh, do you want to talk about, as we're in the home stretch, you want to talk about, um, is it called After the Bridge? Yeah. Um, okay. So this is a completely different film. Um, After the Bridge is, uh, it's a portrait of the mother of one of the, jihadists who uh, attacked people on the London Bridge in uh, 2017 and who was killed. And uh, so she's grappling with a lot, obviously. And it's very personal. It's very intimate. She's shot like straight on close up, you know, or she's shot like in a vast landscape and she's just walking. It's just like, but when she's shot in close up, it's like dark. It's like she's shrouded in darkness, right? 
And, and even so when she's shot out in the open, it's like she's lost in the landscape. So there's, you know, there's something going on there. And she starts to open up about the whole thing. If, you know, it, it, it comes slowly. But I think that's, that's really effective because it's like, how do you talk about this? At first, you'd, if you didn't read the description, you wouldn't know. She just talks about, you know, wanting to escape. And, and then she, she sort of like comes in and starts talking about it. And you start to see footage of the media circus around her house. They want to talk to her and then, you know, and then like later on, they sort of fold in footage from the aftermath of the London Bridge. Uh, so it starts to become this amazing portrait of someone who was affected in another way. You know, it's complicated because she's the mother, but she's like really angry that he did that. She's got very, like, she has a very complex reaction to what happened. You know, talk about observational. It's like you, you, you watch and you, you see, right? And then the film like moves. It's like what I liked about it was that it, it shifts from this event and becomes, and it was always a portrait of her. But it starts to shift into how she's remembering the way she used to be before she got married. Because when she got married, she adopted like the whole Islam, you know, the whole hijab, everything. Uh, but before that, she was like a Catholic Italian girl. And so it starts to incorporate this. It seems to be family footage, but. I'm not sure it is because there's all this. Uh, sorry, I watched the credits and in the credits. It, it's like this stuff from like family archives, like official family archives. Um, but anyway, so they're folding in this sort of narrative of a young girl in a, like in a completely different, freer way. Uh, and so when you see her talking about wanting to connect to that person and sort of like trying to be on this journey to find herself now it's like un unlike anything i've seen in a way like that sounds familiar you know reconnecting with yourself reconnecting with the past after a tragedy but the shift in this film it's like the details make it so so unique in a way you know mm -hmm. yeah it's a very tricky subject because we don't often don't think about the loved ones of people who do bad things as like people yeah they often yeah, exactly. get vilified as if they did the the act themselves so that sounds very interesting uh, do you want to close things out by talking about the only doctor no i'm gonna get all riled up about the only doctor well, that's a good you know end on a on a furious note that's always a good one <laughs> i'm ending with my fist in the air okay talk about unfairness okay here we go so, uh, The Only Doctor is an American film about Dr. Karen Kinsel. She's the only doctor in Georgia's poorest county. And she's been doing this for, at the time of the filming, for 15 years. She does this as a volunteer, mostly. Her family had some, she inherited some family money. It doesn't seem like it's like that much. But anyway, she was able to like live on it and uh, provide care to people who don't have money. Because remember in the States, if you don't have money, you can't get healthcare. 
there's some Medicare and Medicaid and like stuff like that, but it still doesn't help when you are this poor. And this is a county that not only is it underserved, it's also majority black inhabitants, right? So there's this, you know, you start to get suspicious when you start hearing like, well, this place closed and that place closed and they have to travel like 60 miles in one or to get to one place or 40 miles to get to another. And the great thing about the film is it doesn't just give a portrait of her, but we also get to see some verite footage of her with patients so that you get to hear the perspective of the patients, of the individuals who live there, who depend on her. She charges a minimal amount, 10 bucks. That's it. And so it becomes affordable and she is taking care of people, but the clinic is running down. It's like it's in total disrepair. There's places in it that are rotting, you know, and she thinks that there's going to be an answer, um, but things start to get complicated. Right. Uh, and it, uh, it just gets me so I, I don't want to give away too much because I want yeah, people no. to see it. You know, it's it's like this is not the most aesthetically complicated or aesthetically visually fascinating of all the films I've seen. But it's such an intimate portrait and everyone is so compelling. All the patients are like they love her. and She loves them. You know, that's the beautiful thing is the relationships that she, the close, close relationships that she has. And the, you can see how much she cares and you can see how much people appreciate her. And you could see they don't have options, right? Um, and there would be no other way, but it's been 15 years. She's getting on in years. So she, you know, she has to like think of a way. She doesn't want to abandon her patients. And she's trying to figure out ways to help her patients and live her life at the same time. Yeah, that sounds great. That's yeah. the, the, the only doctor. The only doctor, yeah. Okay, well, you know, that's a good, wide-ranging list of films that, uh, for the, I believe, for all of them we recommend. Um, yeah. And that's just absolutely. a small fraction of what's playing at Hot Docs that year, which is a, a good sign for any, any festival. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you and I have been lucky on this episode. (laughs) We saw some great ones. So, okay. So that's it for Friendline for this week. Tune in to the next episode. We will continue with some more recommendations because, of course, closing weekend, we're going to talk about what's still playing then. And maybe do some recaps of stuff, highlights, you know. We'll see how it goes. So. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. For Courtney Small, I'm Barbara Kosofsky. This has been Frameline.